Turn with me to Romans chapter 1 as we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15 this morning as we continue our study in the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans for this entire year, so I encourage you to read ahead and read ahead often. Uh, it, will, it will definitely bear much fruit. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15 this morning. Before we do that, let's go again to God in prayer and ask for His help. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we are aware that this is your word to your people. These aren't the words of a mere man, though you used a mere man to bring these words to us. But these are the words of Almighty God. And as we read them, we pray that you, our Lord and our God, would instruct us and change us by them. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. had a lot of opportunity in the last few weeks to consider friendship and as I read this passage and Paul is longing to be with the church in Rome, it made me think of the concept of friendship and if you've been around long enough, you know what it feels like to have a relationship with a friend or even a loved one or someone and you can go long periods without seeing them and then all of a sudden you come back together and it's as if you had never left, right? It's like all the years weren't there and you just kind of pick up where you continue or where you left off and you just kind of continue on. And I think the best kinds of relationships are like that because distance and time cannot separate that kind of strong relationship. And I have friends that I don't see as often as I would like, but when I do see them, it's as if we've been together for the whole time, just like we've been for years and years. In our text today, the Apostle Paul is speaking to fellow believers in Rome. He's written this letter to these believers in Rome, and yet unlike long-distance relationships that we have with our friends and loved ones, Paul had never met many of them. And yet as you read the passage today, you get the idea that he has, or at least shares something with them that has created this strong bond And that's just it. There is something, someone who binds them together for all eternity, and that's our Lord Jesus. As we work through this passage, we'll see that kind of strong relationship, how the bonds that they share in Christ are what keep them together, what keep us together. There are disciplines that Christians share with one another, like prayer and fellowship and and our common mission that we have together that bind us together regardless of how time and distance would attempt to separate us. Even we share in the bond with these first century Christians in that same way as we long for our heavenly home and they will be there. Even the Scriptures mention them in Hebrews 12 as this great cloud of witnesses that will be there watching as we go through our own lives. As we work through this verse today, or this, these verses today, we're going to see how we ought to encourage one another through these disciplines and how God can use them to grow us closer to Him and closer together. We're going to consider three main ideas, asking God's grace, second, sharing God's presence, and finally, working God's mission. So with that, let's look together at the text, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Romans 1, 8-15 
First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So we talked a bit last week about that first century church there in Rome and how Paul had been yet to meet them. And remember we said that no one was really sure who planted that first century church there in Rome. But we meet a few of their probably original members as we read through the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts we meet two characters, Priscilla and Aquila. These are two believers whom Paul had met during his time in Corinth, probably during his second missionary journey, and they were Jewish refugees because all Jewish people were exiled from the city of Rome around 49 A.D., and Paul met them there in Corinth as they were also tent makers with with Paul. More than likely, they first told Paul about the church there in Rome, and over the years his interest kind of built and built to go and to see these Christians in Rome. He wrote this letter probably five or six years after he wrote or after he met Priscilla and Aquila and then would finally travel to Rome a few years after that, though he traveled as a prisoner. All that to say, Paul experienced this deep connection with the church there in Rome long before he actually met them. And when he finally did meet them, it was like a long-lost friend had come home. He spent a few years there as a prisoner, ministering to the believers there in Rome as they ministered to him during his imprisonment. When you read the lives of first century Christians and their interaction with God's people as a whole, whether you read it in the book of Acts, which the book of Acts is essentially just that, it's a it's kind of a history for us of that first century church, or you read other non-biblical historical accounts, you get the idea that the way that we see the church isn't quite the same. And that isn't to say that we need to somehow figure out how to do first century church all over again. It's not what we're saying here. That is not the goal of the book of Acts. Because I'm fine not running and hiding and worshiping under the threat of persecution and death nonstop. I'm totally okay with that. 100%. But the way that they considered themselves as one body of Christ doing one mission together is always encouraging. As we move through this passage today, I want us, I want it to first speak to your own connection to this congregation, this body of believers here at Redeemer Community Church as we commune together in Christ. That is first and foremost that you don't see church as something that we merely consume each week on Sunday, we kind of come and we get our thing and then we leave 
out to do life the rest of the way. Rather, the church is not something that we consume, but it is something that we add to necessarily. But next, I want you to consider how we can encourage the body of Christ in our larger area. Whether it be the churches in our own presbyteries, you hear me talk about some of these churches a lot. We have one right down the road in Paducah, New Geneva. How can you encourage them? What about future churches that don't currently exist? We have in mind to plant other churches. How can we serve those churches even now as we look to the future? And other churches here in Murray whose membership includes our friends and our family. How can we serve them as we serve Christ together? And so as we move through this passage, I encourage you to think on those questions as we move to the first point, asking God's grace. Look with me at verse 8 again. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Over and over in Paul's letters, he thanks God for his work in the lives of believers all over the world. In many cases, he knows the people whom he is thanking God for, right? As we read these other letters, he thanks God for these churches. He knows their stories and how God blessed them. Many of times, Paul was a part of those stories and those blessings. But in this case, he had met a few Roman Christians at this point, but largely that church remained a mystery to him. Yet he thanks God nonetheless. One constant in the Christian life is the grace of God working in the lives of his people. And he begins that work by bringing those dead in their sins to life in Christ Jesus. This is something to celebrate indeed. And we see Paul celebrating that as he talks about the Roman church. And this news hadn't just reached Paul's ears, but apparently the news of Christians in Rome had reached many places. Christianity is a new religion in the sense that Christ had come and he had lived and he had died under Roman rule really recently when Paul was writing this. In the last 50 years, all of those things had happened, right? This Messiah that the Old Testament speaks of has, has just recently come and, and died for his people and has risen again. And from that day, the day of Pentecost, there in Acts chapter 2, the people are spread all over the known world taking the gospel with them because all those people were saved on that day and they spoke many different languages. And now they're going all out to their own homes, taking the gospel in their own languages to all these different parts of the world. Just as the Jewish culture had been changed by the church, so too was the Greco-Roman culture now being influenced. And this news was good news because the name of Jesus Christ was going forth into the world. And Paul's first act of love and care for this Roman church was to pray for them without ceasing. See this in verses 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I might or I may now at last succeed in coming to you. His prayers are general for the church, but they're also specific, namely that he would be able to come to them. We're going to get to that shortly. But I want to speak to this idea of praying for the church and how it affected Paul's view of the church there in Rome. Notice that throughout this text, even as we work through this entire book, frankly, 
If you look in all of Paul's writings in the New Testament, he mentions that he is praying for the churches that he's writing to. And even though many times he has something very difficult to say to them, even some some biting words, as we've gone through books like Galatians and we've seen that, there's not always, he has some some things that he has to say to them that aren't necessarily easy to say. But he's always doing so out of a spirit of love and affection for these churches. How do we know that he loves them and he cares for them the way that he does? We've probably heard it said many times, as I've heard, that it's hard to dislike someone that you're praying for without ceasing. In fact, you start to do the opposite when your prayers are for their welfare and their spiritual well-being and for their growth in the gospel. He's praying for these churches without ceasing. So, of course, he loves them and cares them, cares for them. His love and affection for the Roman church was only growing in, in spite of the fact that he had never seen it. Today, we have things like social media, and the fact that we have more and more awareness of individuals' everyday lives, which isn't bad or good, it's just a thing. And even the lives of those around us that we may only know in passing, right? That we just kind of are friends with, but not really close with. We just kind of know them, but we see their lives on display all the time. And if you just read posts, if you just read about the everyday lives of the people that we kind of know, it seems as if the prayer life of the church is very good. Or at least it should be. Everyone is always telling one another how much they're praying for them. Which this is absolutely a good thing. I'm all for it 100%. We should be praying for one another, right? I'm all for these things. Yet it seems like if we were praying for one another as much as we say we are, we'd be a much more unified church. Now, be careful because I'm not saying that the church is currently at war or anything like that or that uh, with other churches or with other believers or anything like that. What I mean by unified is that our lives seem very distant from one another at times. Like we are living lives apart from the spiritual component of our lives and that saying we are praying for people or asking, even asking for prayers from people can be a kind of shield as a way to keep people at a distance, to not really go into what's going on, to kind of dismiss the presence. Yeah, just pray for me. It's a way to kind of stand back. I want to work this out in the next point, but all that's to say that prayer is essential in teaching God or teaching us to love others and to love the God that we're praying to. It takes the focus off ourselves and on to others, their needs, and how we can encourage them and build them up. And notice how closely Paul's unceasing prayer for the Roman church was tied to his desire to be with them. And that brings us to the second point, sharing God's presence. Let's look again, verses 10 through 12. Always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. 
The specific request Paul asked of God concerning the Roman church had to do with his desire to be with them. And he lets us in on why this is important. Because he wants to impart some kind of spiritual blessing to this church. We see that in verse 11. And when we read this, we might want to kind of dream up some kind of crazy blessing that Paul was going to be able to give this Roman church, right? And if you read through the book of Acts, the power of God rested on Paul in such a way that his handkerchiefs were used to heal others. God obviously being the power behind that healing, but God used the person, Paul, in a very powerful way. And so we want to dream up some kind of spiritual blessing that the Roman church got that's something that we can have too, right? There's some kind of secret, because we love secrets in the church for some reason, but it's nothing like that. If we'd be looking for faith-healing handkerchiefs, we might be disappointed here. Look at verse 12. What is the blessing that they're going to get? That I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What is this spiritual gift? That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. The blessing that he wants to impart is mutual encouragement that comes from being together, being present with one another. Even in verse 13, what is his hope? I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have intended to come to you in order that I might reap some harvest among you. We see that he's wanting to reap the harvest in the church, which is probably speaking of his mission outside the church for sure, which we're going to talk about, but also the harvest of Christian maturity and obedience to God. There's only good that can come when Christians are together, worshiping God together, praying for one another, just being together as God's covenant people. And this should come as no surprise to us at all. As we worship a God who became flesh and dwelt among us. He became like us in order to be with us. To bring salvation for us and in us and even through us as we do His mission on this earth. Jesus came to earth for His people. And he would go away, right? And the disciples were distraught. And he was going to go away. His presence was going to be removed. And so what did he do? He sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. To be present in us until he returns. He gave us to one another. What is his prayer in John 17 as he prays for the church? That they would be one. Even as the Son and the Father are one. That they would be together many, many times, hundred plus times in ministry. I've had the discussion with believers that didn't think that they needed to be in church each Sunday. They may have started out pretty strong in their faith being here among the people of God and then decided that that wasn't for them because of that whole distance thing and they didn't want to need to be in church. And their conclusion, of course, they wanted to make sure that it was on the up and up. Their conclusion, well, it's not commanded anywhere in the Bible. And they're already ready for it. They're ready for me to quote Hebrews 10.25 at them. And so they'll even say, yeah, Hebrews 
10 tells us that we shouldn't forsake the gathering together, but they're, and they're really quick to quote that verse, but in their minds, there's no overt command for the church to be together. That they would attend church when they needed to. But otherwise, they were going to worship God in their own way. We've all heard this, right? And we've heard good arguments even. Well, I thought the relationship with Christ was personal, right? We've all heard this. In fact, we've all felt it if we're really honest. we felt this. Just like our prayers, we want the appearance of the thing, not the reality. We want everything to do with the church, just not the people and the presence. We want the church to be something that we can consume when we need it. Not something that requires us to give of ourselves at all. So we do church on our terms, just like we do everything else. Yet everything about our faith, everything about our faith, from how the people of God wandered together all of those years in the wilderness, to how the prophets lived among the people and ministered to them the Word of God, to how the kings of God fought with and beside the people of God, to how our Savior and our Lord Jesus became flesh, the very Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us, to how the New Testament church did everything together. Everything about our faith is about being together as one united people who love being together. This isn't to say that we should all be under one roof. I don't think that, that the Bible's telling us to do that, and rather that we should all be of one mind. We should pray for one another so much that it causes us to long to be together. We should be together when we can in order to struggle beside one another, laugh together, mourn together, worship together. Everything about Christianity is together. And when you see that Paul writes to these believers whom he's never met, you see that. He wants to be with these people and he doesn't even know who they are. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to look at that passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And I want you to see the connection. Because we've all heard Hebrews 10.25 is a command for us to be together. But oftentimes we don't bring the full context of the Scripture on it. And I think that's why you can look at Romans chapter 1, verses 8-15 through and you see the same thing there. It's because all of Scripture is teaching this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And again, consider what I just said as we walk through the Scripture, seeing how all of our faith is about this. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, since all of these things have been opened up because of what Christ did for us, what should we do? Verse 22, let us draw near. 
with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the author's attitude here. Since Jesus has made it so that we might go before the very throne room of God, having been the priest and sacrifice for us, of course, we'd want to celebrate these things together. That there's going to be a day when we will be with Jesus for good. But until that day, we should not forsake being together. We should find every reason, in fact, to be together. I encourage you, church, find reasons to be together. Worship together on Sunday. We meet together on Wednesday nights officially. But there's nothing stopping you from being together more frequently than you are. If you feel yourself not wanting to do that, I get it. Probably more than most, I get it. Then pray for the church. Pray for them by name. The ones that are sitting here. Pray for each family by name, each person by name, and watch and see how it creates a desire for you to want to be together. Our faith isn't solo. Every part of it, everything about it, is not solo. Let us be together as we are on mission together. That brings us to the last point. God's, or working God's mission. Let's look at verses 13 through 15. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The apostle reminded them of his mission to preach the gospel to the Greeks and to the barbarians, which are basically just a word for non-Greeks. He wanted to have a harvest in the church and among the Gentiles, seeing people come to know Christ, seeing people strengthened in their faith, encouraged in their faith. And his preaching of the gospel wasn't limited, notice, to the unbelievers, but also in the church there in Rome. Because even in the church, especially in the church, we don't stop needing the truth of the gospel. It's really easy for us to see our mission as a solo mission. We actually, we kind of like it, especially in the church where we like to count things. We want to talk about the times that we share the gospel and the times that we're discipling others and the number of lives that we've touched and we like to quantify things because we like to make heroes. It can easily become a numbers game for us. We love the allure of making the church's mission our own personal success board. But on the other side of that coin, we can use the success of others as a reason to not do anything. We're jealous, so we do nothing, or we're content with someone else's work, so we do nothing. The church in Rome is obviously doing well. 
and had done well because Jesus is on the throne and Jesus is making all things new. They didn't need the Apostle Paul. They planted themselves. They've been growing up to this point. It's not because he was a great church planner. Again, Paul didn't plant them. It's not because he's some great discipler. He had only met a few of the Roman Christians. And in some ways, Priscilla and Aquila, the ones that we know that he met, discipled him. Or because he was some great evangelist, that church had grown without a single sermon from the Apostle Paul. He was all of those things, of course. The great church planner, evangelist, discipler, all of those things. But God didn't need him to grow his church there. Was Paul jealous of their work? Was he content? Nope. He couldn't wait to be on mission with them. He couldn't wait to be doing the things that they were already doing, working among them, alongside them, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have a lot of questions. First of all, if you're an unbeliever here, it seems to be about the church and what the church ought to be doing, but I encourage you, if you're an unbeliever here, you're not on this mission, but the gospel is for you. Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Call upon His name today and be saved. But for the believers, where are we? This mission isn't a solo one. Our faith is the kind of faith that requires us to be together. Necessarily. It is not a solo faith. We need to be together in this building. We need to be together even as ARPs. We need to be together as the church that exists here in Western Kentucky. We need each other. We must pray for one another as the day of the Lord approaches. We long for that day when Jesus will finally come back, but until He comes, we need to pray for one another. And our prayer should include that God would give us every opportunity to be together in Him more and more as we consider our days and our times. And that God would grow us together as we do mission together, both inside this building and with the congregations that we know and love around us. Pray that God would use us here and that He would use us in our community as He grows us together in Jesus Christ. Let's go to Him in prayer.